You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, or if you want to go to your Bible app, or you want to go to the version and follow along in the event that we created, uh, we're going to be in Romans 11, looking at verses 11 through 32, which is a pretty large section of Scripture. It's on page 1005, if you're using one of the church Bibles, it's under the chair there somewhere by you. It is a generous portion of Scripture, so I want to encourage that we be patient and attentive to it as we hear from God's Word. I'd like to begin by reading this and encourage that you along, possibly um, maybe with the kiddos who are starting to learn to read, you can kind of show them on the Bible where we're going and they can follow along with you as well. This is God's Word. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I might, some, if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For their rejection brings reconciliation to the world. What, excuse me, if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. I'm at verse 17. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, through a, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have, be, and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And even if they, excuse me, and even, and even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own tree? Verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gift and calling are irrevocable. As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, So they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you. 
so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Lord, as we seek to understand this this robust and, and complicated and maybe even a little bit confusing section of Scripture about Israel and Gentiles and what Paul has been saying about what was been happening in, in his day and even in ours, Lord, help us to understand it and see it. Help us to receive the message that you have for us. Lord, give us clarity in it. And Lord, may it not be empty, but may it be applied richly to our lives that it would radically transform and change us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Reading this section of Scripture and thinking about all that was there, I was reminded of Smith and Edwards, the country boy military surplus store in Ogden. I don't know if you've ever been there. If you've, if you've never been there, I have absolutely no way, uh, I have no words, I cannot describe this place. Um, I'm not even sure where to start. So it's like a Frankenstein mashup of a military surplus store with uh, an Ace hardware store with a cooking and kitchen store, uh, also a camping store, a gun shop, a horse tackle shop, a tourism and tourism uh, paraphernalia store, a fishing shop, a toy store, a clothing store, a shoe shop. Um, what else is there? I mean, you can get a, a candy, a huge candy store section. You can get a corn dog and a milkshake. I mean, this is a strange, strange place. The, the feelings you have when you walk into this place are complex. There may be feelings you've never had before trying to make sense of what you're seeing. Uh, Awe-inspiring is maybe not how I describe it, but (laughs) it's a unique place with a lot there and a lot to take in. Romans 11 can be seen like a Smith and Edwards. (laughs) We might read it like this robust mashup where you can get all sorts of different theology and all sorts of different things, a little bit over here and a little bit over here. And, and in this, it seems like there's just something interesting for everyone. <clears throat> That's how we might approach the section of Scripture we just read together. Let me see if I can give you some examples. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 11. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Interesting. It seems that the idea here is that the, that the Jews... Uh, they would see the relationship and then the life transformation that the Gentiles have in Christ. And then because they see that, uh, they realize, wow, I've lost that. I don't have that and I, and I want that. And then I'm jealous for that. And then they realize it was Jesus that we rejected, the one that we rejected, now we want. And so suddenly they're saying, wait, I need that Savior that I rejected. And wow, I, I want that. I mean, talk about a, a reversal of sorts. They've gone from thinking they were God's special people to realizing the train has left town without them. Right, okay. Or how about, how about verse 15? If their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? All right, the construction of this language here suggests that it is God in this verse doing the rejection. We struggle with that. It says God is rejecting the Jews. And by that rejection, the rest of the world will be reconciled. 
Now, this, this kind of comes to us in two different ways. You might remember Matthew 10, 32 through 33. This is where Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I also acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. We, we get a glimpse that that's a little bit of what's going on here. We see that. <clears throat> Remember the parable of the, uh, the tenant, the vineyard tenant, excuse me, the vineyard owner and the tenants. It's in Matthew 21, 33 through 43. If you want to look that up later, I'll summarize it now. <clears throat> Jesus tells this parable specifically to the chief priests and to the religious Jewish elders. And he tells them, there was once this, this vineyard and the vineyard owner uh, leased the vineyard out to some tenants who would care for the vineyard. And the owner sends message to the, to the tenants and says, hey, I'm here to collect on the fruit. It's my fruit. It's, it's owed to me. And the tenants go, mm, not going to happen. And they beat the messenger and send him packing, right? And then the owner sends another messenger and, and they beat that one. And then he sends another one and, and they kill some of the messengers. And they are not about to give the owner of the vineyard the fruit that is owed to him. They're not going to have anything to do with it. So the owner of the vineyard says, you know, I'm going to send my son. He represents me. He has a serious authority. I'm going to send him to my vineyard. And he sends the son. And you know what they do to him? They say, oh, here's the son. This is the heir to the, to the vineyard. If we kill him, we can have the vineyard for ourselves. All this becomes ours. So they kill the son. And the owner goes to his vineyard. Jesus tells them that he took the tenants and he killed them, right? And, and then he gave the vineyard to different tenants. And then in verse 43, Jesus says this to them. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It seems like the recipients here really are the Gentiles, and Paul is saying that it is because of the rejection, it is because of all this that transpired with the Jewish people that the Gentiles have now been brought in and are included. Honestly, we do not have nice, neat theological boxes to put all this stuff in. This is complicated, difficult stuff, right? How about this one? Verse 25 and 26. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Okay, whoa, what? A person could go blind reading all the commentaries and all the books that have been written on just these two verses. This is, is complicated, difficult stuff. I'm going to see if I can just unpack a little bit of it. In most of the other biblical contexts, if we read the Bible, the word that's used here for mystery, sometimes it's translated as secret in some other places or even here, the word is tied to God revealing His truth to people who would otherwise be unable or incapable of seeing it. He's saying, look, you need to see this. You wouldn't understand it without God's intervention. So this mystery is something that God is revealing to His people. Okay, it's like when Jesus answered why he spoke in parables. He was asked, why do you always teach in parables? This seems a little confusing. Matthew 13, 11, Jesus says, it says, He answered, 
Because the secrets, there's that same word, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. Oh, it's like there has to be sort of this, this extra supernatural help or we're not going to see it. So what Paul does not want his readers to be ignorant of, so they won't get conceited, he wants them to understand this thing that God has revealed, something that God is doing, some work of God. And what is it? It says it was a partial hardening of Israel. Until this right time, until this, this event or this time happens regarding the Gentiles. Gentiles were those who weren't Jews. There was Jews and then everybody else, and everybody else was called a Gentile. So when the Gentiles, when something has happened here, that time has passed, then, by God's working, the hardening will be lifted and Israel will be saved. This is tough. I mean, partial hardening, that, that's hard language. What is that? What is that about? Okay, well, it sounds an awful lot like the same thing that happened in Pharaoh's heart. When God hardened Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh, and, and all that during the Exodus. And the people were enslaved. And so God was hardening Pharaoh's heart so that his glory could be seen. So his power could be seen. And by the way, so that all of Egypt would just dump all their riches on the Israelites when they left. They left with all the riches of Israel. God was working it out, and his hardening was a part of the means by which all of that happened. There are a lot of people who really struggle. Maybe some of us in here, we get uncomfortable when the Bible speaks of God doing things like hardening. We go, I don't get that. That doesn't sound too, too, uh, too nice. This is not easy stuff. Please don't hear that I'm standing up here and telling you this is easy stuff. This is tough stuff. What about this phrase? Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. There's going to be this hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. What in the world is that? And really, when is that? And what's going on here? Okay, it's not the exact same wording, but it's very close. It's very similar. Most of the scholars will say, yeah, these two things, they're definitely close enough, and it's it's odd enough that it definitely stands out. It's in Luke 21, 24, where Jesus uses the same language, the same idea. He says the same thing. He says, certain things are going to happen. He's telling them about the future. Certain things are going to happen until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, well, first of all, what things? What, what is he saying is going to happen? He said, Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by an invading army. He said the temple's going to be destroyed, not one stone will be laid on another. Right? And the plain reading of what he said seems to be exactly what happened in AD 70 when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem, sacked the city, right? fulfilling all the things there that were written in Scripture. But his warning, Jesus' warning goes on. He said more than just that. That was just the beginning. It goes on, and most likely the things that he's talking about as that continues is stuff that will happen at the end of the time. And, and in his second coming, <clears throat> he's talking about these future things. I believe that Paul and Jesus, in talking about the times of the Gentiles and the fulfillment of the Gentiles, are talking about the same thing. They're, they're talking about this thing that's going to be fulfilled and this thing that's, that's happening. And so now, in our giant store of all things theology... We've now just added eschatology and end time stuff. There's a ton of stuff in here. I could give us lots more examples. We could just take so many things. We could probably do an entire systematic theology series 
just out of the section of Scripture we're looking at this morning. And we could look at this, and we could look at that, and we could wander over here and wander over there. There'd be something for everyone. But it wasn't Paul's intention to give us this big smattering, this big giant thing of all sorts of random theological ideas altogether. These aren't disconnected. Everything he has shown us here is part of a running argument that he's been making, 9 through 11, and going through the rest of Romans to make a point. And in this case, he's making a single point. A single point so significant that in his 16-chapter book, he gave three chapters to it. 9 through 11. He is making a point. So while it might look like this is a giant Smith and Edwards store of all things theology, that's not the case. Just one thing. One point. Okay, so if I'm right, what's the point? What's he trying to say? Well, first we need to remember how it all started. Okay, how this particular subsection in the book started. It started in, in chapter 9, the beginning. That's where Paul told us that, that he, he, in all sincerity, is in complete anguish for his brothers and sisters in national Israel. Those of the same... Uh, genealogy and family line and same DNA. He says, like, I'm just struggling here. And then from there, he walks through a systematic understanding of the historical and the theological relationship between God and Israel. And then he shows that there's, there's election and choosing and covenant, and there's this method of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says they're rejecting that. That's the only way you can be saved is through Jesus Christ. And so they're rejecting Jesus. And now he's saying because of that, God is rejecting them. But then he tells us it's not final. That's what we read. It's not final. It's not going to be that way forever. God is doing something. He has a purpose. Part of this is to complete his purpose. And when that's done, it says Israel will be saved. Okay, all, all the theological stuff we talked about, the examples I gave you, all of this, and all the other stuff in chapters 9 through 11 are all about God's plan. God has a plan, a master plan. It's being worked out. And God's plan, through God's working, serves God's greater purpose. Okay, so what is it? What are we talking about? I suppose what Paul was trying to do here is he was trying to encourage the church in Rome, because that was the recipients of the letter, mostly um, Gentiles, not to freak out, not to just go bananas when they saw their friends and their family members and their neighbors who are all Jewish just rejecting the Savior, not just losing their minds. Already saying, look, hold on, there's more going on. This doesn't mean that God has forgotten them. It doesn't mean that God's not in control. And so we get a sense that what he's trying to do is encourage the people to trust the Lord, much the same way that I find myself encouraging you, many of you anyway, when you come and talk to me about your lost family who've just rejected Jesus for years and years and years and are struggling this way and that way. Maybe they came to church as kids and now they've walked away. Or you come to me and you talk to me about your coworkers and you said, I've shared the gospel like a hundred times. And they just, they just won't hear it. Or maybe your neighbors, you're just, you're just, you look at our, our community here and you're just going, I don't get why all these people just reject Jesus. The same way Paul encourages is the same way I encourage. God's got a plan. God's working it. The, the technical way we say that is God is sovereign. 
Let's learn some lessons here. There's, there's definitely a lesson to be learned from Romans 9 through 11. And we can apply those lessons pretty easily when we look into our country today and wonder what in the world is going on. Okay, the people in Romans, they probably looked around and said, how can this be God's plan? Are you kidding me? It's cuckoo pants out there. I don't even leave my, my home anymore because the Romans are out doing who knows what. You ought to see all the crazy things they're doing. And by the way, the Romans did some crazy things. We think it's crazy right now in our day, and they had some crazy. There's different seasons in what's going on. And we look in our day, we go, man, it seems like maybe today God is, God is hardening our, our neighbors and he's hardening our nation, and they seem to be celebrating in that hardening. Whoa. Seems like it's crazy. But let's remember there was a time in our country when, when ministry was flourishing, and churches were getting planted, and, and uh, we were sending out missionaries, and we were starting seminaries, and, and all this great stuff was happening, and things were really looking up. Oh, a softening. But there's also been times in our country when there was hardening before now i just recently read that jonathan edwards came into the church and almost nobody in the town was a christian and they had nothing to do with that in his day god has got in different places around the world and our country is no exception kind of seasons of hardening that look really terrifying frankly and seasons of softening and sometimes it's just regional and it's in different areas you know, the, the Great Awakenings in the United States didn't happen everywhere. They happened in specific areas. There was a softening and a hardening. Maybe in our community, there's more of a hardening. and another community, there's more of a softening. Or maybe the hardening and all the crazy and all that stuff will cause God to soften some people's hearts. That's what was happening here. Not all the Israelites were rejecting Jesus. Paul was saying, God is doing something Hardening, softening, different seasons. For the most part, I do believe that our country is experiencing a pretty serious hardening. I mean, I'd love to chat with you if you disagree. I'd like to see what you see because I could show you some good news. But God's sovereign. God has a plan. God's doing things. That's, that's the lesson that I think we can learn here. That's the lesson that that Paul, I think, is, is uh, at least providing for us here in Scripture. God's got this. God's got a plan. Our part of the plan is to share the message, right? to share the message of faith. Paul showed us that. You remember 10, uh, Romans 10, 9? He's talking about our part in the plan. He says, we share the message of faith. Here's the message, you remember? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he's preaching this message in a crazy time of hardening. That's his job. And then God has a job. We do our part. We proclaim the gospel. God does his part. He saves who he wants to save. He softens who he wants to soften. He does what he's going to do. I think that's what Paul is showing us here. But there's more that I think we could take from this. Paul was in agony. Agony. That's how it started over the state and the salvation of his fellow countrymen. He looked out and it just pained him. I think we should be in agony over the state and salvation of our fellow countrymen. Now, most of you are in agony over the state of our nation, but are you in agony over the state of the people? Are you really 
feeling like they need to hear this gospel message. All right? That's what drove Paul to proclaim the gospel, to share it. That's what sent him out of his comfort zone and into difficult places and into persecution was the fact that his job was to proclaim the gospel. And he prayed and prayed and prayed that God would do his part and save many, many people. I think we could learn a lot from Paul. Right? I think we could. Because I think, unfortunately, today, most of us just mirror the world. Okay? Rather than having compassion for others, we've adopted the same world standards, and we hate those who are not like us. And it becomes an us and them. And we want to battle with them. We don't have agony for them. We want to see them destroyed. We want to see them stay way over there. We want things to be changed. We don't want to proclaim the gospel and, and tell the truth and hope that God would do something in this time. I think we can learn a lot from Paul. He has compassion for those who are different. And some of you say, no, 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 I think we're Christians. We have compassion for those who are different. I hope that's true, but let's wait and see what happens in the next election cycle. Let's see if we can learn a lesson from Paul here. And be in agony over the lostness. That absolutely needs to be the case. But that should motivate us to share the gospel, to go into difficult places, wherever that might be. These are are some of the lessons that I think we can pick up here. But, there's something we need to see. I was sharing in uh, the Sunday school class that I teach. We were talking about understanding the big point, understanding the so what, understanding the author's purpose here, God and and Paul together. And I don't think that what I've just shared with you, any of it in fact, is the big thing. I don't think it's what Paul truly is arguing for here. I think he's saying these things are all part of it, but if we get the big thing in the right place, then all the stuff I've just shared with you will fall into place naturally without any difficulty. Hmm. So what's the big thing? What is it that Paul's really doing here? We need to remember that Paul's readers were Christians. Okay, any, if any of them were Jews, they were Jewish Christians. They, they'd accepted Christ. Okay, but honestly, most of them are likely Gentiles. He says that. I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Right? And, and, and in verse 25... He says something very fascinating. He says, I don't want you, or he doesn't want his readers, which I guess could include us too, to be ignorant of the mystery. And then he adds this, so they don't get conceited. Why would they get conceited? Like what's being said here that would would make them conceited and puffed up? And what is it that they needed to know so they wouldn't be conceited and so they wouldn't be puffed up? What is this? Well, there's this partial hardening going on, right? And because of the partial hardening, the Gentiles can come in and be a part of God's people and look at how that's going. And then when that's sorted out, Israel can get saved. That to me almost seems like a reason for Gentiles to be conceited. Hey, look at us. Those guys, they failed. They missed the point. But we get to come in, put our feet up, Enjoy the grace of God. Look at how wonderful this is. And once we get it all situated, once the Gentiles are in, then, then the Israelites are going to come back in. Isn't that great? But that sounds like an easy way to be conceited, if you ask me. So it can't be that. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what Paul wants us to celebrate, because that would make us conceited. What's the message underlying Paul's words that would keep us from getting conceited? 
Let me put it another way. What is the big point of the teaching here? What is he really getting at? What does God want us to see? In teaching and preaching, illustrations serve a specific purpose. Now, I'm terrible at illustrations, so you don't get lots of practice with this. But I can tell you what they don't do. I can tell you what they're not for. They are not to show people how clever the preacher is. That's not the purpose of an illustration. They are not just funny or interesting stories that the preacher should try to work into a sermon somehow and then find out how he's going to get it in there or attach some scripture to it. It's not like he has this, you know, start with the illustration and then figure out a sermon around it. That's not how they work. Okay, and they're not for the preacher to talk about himself so that you can connect with him and so that you like him more. No preacher should ever use an illustration as the key teaching and then figure out how Scripture can can line up with his illustration. That should never be done. It's not what illustration is for. Illustration should serve the purpose of the Scripture. It should be a servant to the teaching. Illustration should be used to better help explain what the Scripture is already teaching. Okay, so it might be that illustration shines more light on the point to make it a little bit easier for us to see. Maybe it was a little dull and the light helped us to see it in some way. It might be that the illustration is to uh, show us a different perspective so that it might be more uh, understood. It might be a way of restating the, the purpose so that it can be reinforced and better remembered. There could be that the illustration is like opening up a window and letting in some fresh air because somehow the preacher has made wonderful things stale and we just need a little breath of fresh air. Illustration is never the main thing. It's never the main thing. It always serves the main thing. Okay, so now that I've shown you what illustration does, now that we have that in mind, look down at uh, Romans eleven sixteen. Okay, and if you write in your Bible, you might want to underline it. If you draw a little key, this is a real key in helping us unlock what this point is because it's going to open up the door for an illustration. It says, now, if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. Okay, he's gone from talking about Gentiles and Jews to fruits. and It says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So his illustration is a tree, a fruit tree. Let's keep reading. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, so he's bringing people into his illustration, you, though a wild olive branch, the Gentiles are the wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you were better than those branches. But if you do boast, here's how you should be rebuked, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, true enough. They were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware, because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Okay, so the illustration here is a fruit tree. It's, it's branches. Right? Paul is giving us this illustration to help 
advance the argument he's making, to help shed light on it, to help make it more clear. So if we missed it on the first pass, the illustration might help it be a little bit more clear. We get a second shot at it. Okay, the illustration is about what? A fruit tree with one root. One tree, one root. And in the illustration, all the sustenance and all the blessing and all the goodness comes from the root, not the branches. Okay, and if this was just about fruit, if this whole argument he's making was about the fruit, or if the illustration was about the fruit, then the gardener would just cut off the unfruitful branches and just grow more branches and see if they're going to be fruitful. That's not what happened in the illustration. Because it's not about the fruit. It's about the root. So in the illustration, the wild olive branches that come from a place that don't have a good root, that come from somewhere outside of this good thing, were actually taken and brought to the good root. And how can they get the sustenance of the good root? They have to be grafted on. That's about the root. That's making the root well known. We get to see the power of what this tree is doing. It's not about the fruit. Also in the illustration, there's literally only one tree. There are no other good trees. There's nothing else out there. The wild olive trees weren't cultivated to become cultivated trees. They were brought to the cultivated tree. The only good fruit we're ever going to find is associated with this good root. That's the illustration Paul is making. So do you see it now? Is that helping it to become clear? There's only one God. There's no other way. There's nothing good if it's not from God. It's all about God. All of it. It's about glorifying God. If we make it about ourselves or our place with God or our relationship with God, but it's still about us, we're not glorifying God. And then we deserve to be cut off. But from the very start, God had Jews and Gentiles in mind. You remember? He raised up the Jewish people to be a priest to the whole world, to to share the message to the whole world. As if they were to say, hey, wild olive branches, come on to the tree. They were supposed to be doing this, but where they were failing and rejecting the Savior, God was succeeding for His glory. Because God was keeping His promises. The plan was still going. Everything was still right in line with where God had planned it to be. God was succeeding. God was working. We need to trust that. He was making a people for himself, and those people would be uh, his, and he would be their God. And he says, not only here, but in this illustration, there is no distinction. It's not about Jew or Gentile. It's about God's people. And if they are his people, if he's making them his people, if you are of his people, you get to be a part of his plan. And you get to be a part of this illustration of the tree, which what is the tree? It's a kingdom. It's his his kingdom. It's a family. It's his family. It's his people, his kingdom, his plan, and God is carrying it all out. All of this salvation, it's all in his hands, his kingdom, in his control. All the stuff we look around and say, what's going on? It doesn't make any sense to me. It's in God's control. He's got it. And it's all for his glory. See how that illustration Helps us see that. That's what Paul's been talking about from chapter 9 all the way through chapter 11. 
It's all about this one thing. So it's no wonder. It should be no surprise to us at all that Jesus would use the same illustration when he told his disciples the vine and the branches. Right? He is the vine. We are the branches. John 15. No wonder he would say the exact same thing. And he instructed his disciples, hold on, abide, hang on. And if we're to abide in Christ, especially in this crazy world that makes no sense right now, we will be blessed by the root. We will produce fruit. So we need not worry about all that other stuff. We do our part, and we trust that God will do His part. God is working for His plan and for His purpose for all of His people and all of it to His glory. We just need to rest in that and hold on to it. So I just want to end with this. I want to ask you some questions. What is God showing you in this mystery? What is he opening your eyes to this morning, right now? What does he want you to see from this text regarding your life in this world? What you're gaining from him? What fruit you're producing? What's he showing you? And if you're not with the cultivated olive branch and you're the wild tree, he's calling you, come to the kingdom. Come to the tree. Come to salvation. We'd love to talk with you more about that. Most of us in here, we're, we're holding on to that tree, I hope. But what, where do you need to hold on more? Where do you need to trust more? What fruit needs to be produced more. What needs to change in your life today, right now, based on what God is showing you from His Word? You probably all have something in mind. God's showing you something. Now the question is, how are you going to respond to what He's showing you? Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile because all become your people through the faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I am longing for the fulfillment of the time of the Gentiles and the salvation of the Jews and, and all these things that you were planning to come to pass. I'm, I'm longing for that, Lord, but please don't let me miss what you're doing right now in your plan in this world. God, I know we're struggling with some of the things we see around us. Let us trust you more. Let us just trust you. Give us the, the courage and the equipping and the ability to just proclaim your truth, to trust you with the results. God, I don't, I don't profess to know why you're doing some of the things you're doing today or why the way you did the things the way you did them then, but I do know that you know. And it is the best plan. There is no other plan. So Lord, help us as a church to trust your plan. Help us to see it. And God, please speak to each and every one of us and in terms we can understand and in ways that we can see, reveal this mystery to us and how we change this for our lives right now today, that we would be better for having heard from your word and, and obeying your word and having even been here this morning together because, Lord, we would respond to your word. Lord, here in just a moment and taking the Lord's Supper and singing in worship, but, Lord, also in whatever else you would move us to this week. God, I'm just thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your love. I'm thankful for your plan. I'm thankful for Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in Jesus' name.
Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.